0: Well good morning everybody. There you go. All you have to do is repeat and talk louder. That's all that's all that's required. I hope you guys are uh, uh, enjoying yourselves this morning. Worship was wonderful so thank you Adam and thank you team. That was really great. So we're gonna we're gonna take a jump into another chapter in Genesis this morning and in our exploration of Genesis we've encountered some uh, Some really great stories, right? Uh, Stories that inspire us, some that reveal our true nature. And then some of the stories like we're going to deal with in Genesis 34 that make us wonder why in the world the biblical writers would ever include such chaos. Have you ever wondered when you're reading the Bible, why did they put that in there? You're thinking, listen, if you're going to write a story that makes people want to be a part of your faith and your religion, leave that out right? It's just like you guys when you're telling your family stories. Nobody talks about Uncle Bill, right? You know, this is a bad, bad story, right? So, so this is one of those stories, and it's really challenging for us, and I get the pleasure of always handling these really strange stories, So, because I tried to pawn them off on people, and they never want to preach them. So anyway, thanks, Dylan. Anyway, I'm just messing with you. So as I've said before, and others, have, uh, others that I have learned from sometimes the Bible actually gives us descriptive stories and not prescriptive stories. And so what we mean by that or what is meant by that is sometimes you're just supposed to read a story and learn the story. It's not necessarily to tell you, here's how Nathan should act today. Here's how, you know, so-and-so should act today. Um, There are implicit, uh, uh, implicit ideas of maybe how we shouldn't act, and we'll discuss those as we get through this crazy story. Um, So just remember, all of the Bible is not prescriptive. Sometimes it's just descriptive, sometimes it's a story to set the stage for all the other stuff that's going on. And so today, we're going to be working through a story that unveils a profound ethical dilemma, and that dilemma is the balance between, or the dilemma between, justice and revenge, which I find fascinating. The account in question here is the account of Dinah and Shechem, which challenges us to examine how we respond to injustice. We're going to look at roles within the ancient Near East, we're going to look at some customs, we're going to look at the wisdom of two of the most renowned Christian thinkers and two of my favorites, again, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, as we delve into the story. And we're also going to, of course, seek God's word. We're going to find out what it is that God says, because here's the here's the kind of way you should lead your life uh, when it comes to understanding moral things or life things. You can listen and should listen to wise thinkers and wise teachers. You should you should listen to and and uh, and listen. You should listen to and and um, even apply the things that wise teachers teach you in so much as that they line up with the Word of God, right? Because how many of you know that even C.S. Lewis didn't get it all right? I wish he did, because he'd be much cooler. He's a, he's a much more fascinating writer to read. So, But not everybody gets, not all these teachers get it right, and we have to govern it by the Word of God. So we have to look at this situation. So in order to grasp uh, what I... Call the intricacies of this story, the Dinah and Shechem story. We have to first look at prevalent uh, Near Eastern customs marriage, family, uh, intertribal relationships, all of these are deeply intertwined, uh, societal norms, alliances, and then one of the big ones is actually this idea of honor within this culture. It's something that um, I believe, is missing today. But in the ancient Near East, we'll deal with marriages and alliance. In the ancient Near East, marriages were often arranged, and they were arranged to secure, uh, again, these alliances or these, um, the benefits that come with these different tribal families. Uh, these unions were aimed to consolidate political power. It's just something that happened. This is so far from our way of thinking today that we just kind of, we kind of recoil at it. We do one thing, one thing that is common in the modern church is that we look at these strange customs and we immediately jump to moral uh, judgments and they weren't moral or immoral. They were just a part of the culture. So arranged marriages is not an immoral practice um, I'm actually arranging all of my daughter's marriages presently, but it's not an immoral practice. It's just weird to us because, why? Because we live in a culture where everybody has their choices, right? And don't get me wrong, you have your choices. It's really, it's really important that you do have your choices. But uh, in, at a certain point in life, many of the choices that were made were made for people, for bigger reasons, right? So they would arrange marriages for alliances and tribal families. Such unions aimed uh, to consolidate political power, expand territory, and maintain prosperity. In the story today, what we learn is that the people... Uh, Shechem's world uh, needed women to marry and uh, vice versa for, uh, for Jacob's world. And so that was a part of the maintaining of prosperity. It's not always money that equals prosperity. And so in the case of Dinah and Shechem, we see, though, that potential alliances can lead to really tragic and devastating situations. The second cultural thing is that polygamy and uh, leveret marriages were both very common practices. Again, not something to make a moral claim about here. But uh, with leveret marriages, what happened was that a man would marry his deceased brother's widow... For what purpose? Well, he would marry her uh, to ensure the continuation of that family line and to protect the widow. And both of these customs of, uh, of marriage are actually influencing the choices that are made by specifically Dinah's family. Uh, the third one is this honor and shame thing and they are paramount in this culture. Honor and shame in the ancient Near Eastern cultures. They still Operate in certain cultures where honor matters, okay? Um, In today's world, I'm not really sure it does, and I can give you an example of why I don't think it does, and that is that we don't need to look any further than how we treat um, older people in our world, right? We don't actually have a great deal of honor. For our culture or for people because when people pass a certain age, we're like, let's just ship these people off and let other people take care of them. And let's get back on about our business because life is about me. Life is about me being happy. Life is, that's not an honor culture. That's a selfish culture. Whether we will accept that uh, judgment that I've made there or not. And so uh, honor mattered in, in the ancient Near East. Actions that brought shame upon a family uh, demanded a drastic response. Now, I'm not giving an excuse here before we read this story, giving an excuse for what happens in the story, but when you have a culture that, that believes that dishonor requires a response, and quite a drastic one, uh, you're going to see drastic responses today, right? So honor could elevate an individual's standing in society, and dishonor could crush it. I think we see this with King David, uh, although not attached to the story. We, we see it with King David in the fact that when David slays his ten thousands, as the Bible says, he is a very honored character, and that honor takes him a long way now some might say Nathan God took David a long way God did take David a long way what we fail to remember at times is the very human elements of the Bible how did God take David a long way Uh, the Bible is filled with with God working behind the scenes using human interactions to take somebody far And so honor was one of the examples of how David became as big as he was. Because God allows him to be in this place, and then he becomes honored and takes this high place of prestige. So the importance of honor deeply affects the decision that is made by Dinah's brothers. Okay, and we're going to see that. If you haven't read this story, just... Go ahead and brace yourself because it's going to get funny and sticky here in a second. So now that we've dug a little bit deeper and understand cultural backgrounds, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the moral choices that unfold. Then we'll look at Christian thought and then we'll look at the Bible and then I'll wrap everything up. So the narrative of Dinah and Shechem presents us with, again, this complex moral landscape revealing the consequences of seeking justice or rather revenge and doing so through deceit. So Dinah is, is the daughter of Jacob and Leah, not the daughter, this is back to the polygamy thing, not the daughter of Jacob and, uh, and Rachel, right, but Jacob and Leah, okay? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 34. And if you have a digital Bible, I'm just going to read through the NIV because it's just an easier read than some of the other translations, so here's how the word of God paints this picture. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah had, bor- uh, had born to Jacob uh, Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem's son of Hamor, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and he raped her his heart was drawn to Dinah's daughter, Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. Now remember the cultural things that we've just established. Get this girl as my wife. That makes sense because they arranged marriages, right? Here's the issue though. With regard to raping this girl, And then the Bible goes right from this idea of him violating this girl to his heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. Let me ask you a question. What goes through your mind when you hear his heart was drawn to her? Your mind should say, who the heck cares what his heart was drawn to, right? It should upset you because this is really rough. This is a bad situation. But what we do have, whether we like it or not, is this strange character who violates this girl who actually has fallen for her. Whether it's in lust or in love, I don't know, right? But he has fallen for her. So he loved the young woman, the Bible says, and spoke tenderly to her. Verse 5, when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So, he did nothing about it until they came home. Now, you might look at that and go, what kind of a dad pauses on this kind of thing? Well, there was a lot going on to the decisions that a tribe made and that a people group made, okay? And so, he waits for his sons. Maybe that was a mistake, but he waits for his sons. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because, well, they should be, because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Verse 8: But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us, give us your daughters, and take our daughters for yourself. Prosperity. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Prosperity. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Prosperity and union politically, potentially. Verse 11 Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride. That was a common practice as well, so giving some sort of dowry or price for the bride. And the gift I am to bring as give, as great as you like. In other words, charge me what you want, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully, highlighted in your Bible, deceitfully, as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males." Now, this is a strange, it's already a strange enough practice, but it's a strange thing that occurs here. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. You see that political alliance developing here. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and we'll go. Oh, Okay, that's an interesting thing. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who was the most honored of all his family, uh, father's family, lost no time in doing what they said, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. I'd say you'd have to be pretty delighted to rush into that. Verse 20, so Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak with the men of the city. Now this is where this story is just hilariously strange to me, because Hamor and Shechem go to the city gate where the men of their kingdom, if you will, uh, are, are supposed to listen to them and do what they say. They say, these men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us one people only on this condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. And every man at that city gate should have gone, I'm not volunteer for your problem, right? That's just strange, okay? So all of a sudden he's like, we've got to do this. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms, and they will settle among us. So there's an incentive for everybody attached. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Now, if the story wasn't bad enough already, it just gets worse. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, I'm just going to let that sit there for a second, Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs, in the city, and out in the fields. They carried off their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. What in the world are we reading? The Bible. What fun. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, this is where we get to honor culture, this is where we get to this action that is done, and what happens. You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious, to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, what a wonderful story end, but they replied, should we have treated our sister, should they have treated our sister like a prostitute? End of story, doesn't come back to it. The next one, we have Jacob moving on to... Go worship in Bethel, okay? Very strange story, right? So, with this understanding, what we have is Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah, was violated violated by Shechem. He's the prince of the land. And this grievous act leads to a clash of values. It leads to a clash of personal feelings, setting the stage for everything that we just read. Now, I want to talk to you about, first, about just an idea of, This notion of rape, this notion of arranged marriages, this notion of cultural relevance, uh, cultural actions here, and what in the world we do with it, right? So first of all, rape is atrocious, okay? Anytime you're violating somebody against their will, we get the problem here, right? The next thing that happens is that our culture puts this into a category and says, yeah, and if that happens, what happens if the person gets pregnant? How many of you guys have have heard people say their greatest defense against or for abortion is in the case of a rape victim? Now, first of all, please understand that's, and I don't mean this with any disrespect, that's the unicorn in this story. That is a very, very absurdly rare situation. But in that situation, what happens if that kind of thing occurs? Let's just kind of get an overall view of the culture's view of this kind of thing. On Joe Rogan's podcast, this is years ago, I think, um, he was talking to a guy who talked about abortion being wrong in every circumstance, no matter what, across the board. You all know that I believe that abortion is wrong, right? And I also would say that there are these weird circumstances, these rare moments that we don't have a moral code on what to do. We can't decide the life of the mother or the life of the baby. And if you think this decision is easy, you haven't thought it through or you haven't been in that position, okay? So it's a very challenging issue, right? But when it came to abortion, this guy said there's no reason for it absolutely whatsoever anytime and Joe Rogan balked uh, bucked this and said if my daughter was raped and this is what everybody does they always go to the the rare occurrence if my daughter was raped my daughter should not have to carry that baby to term because of what somebody else did now I want you to be honest with me does does that make sense actually yeah it's frustrating It's frustrating. Now, here's the problem. There's still a baby attached to this, right? So what we're doing is we're making decisions often because of our personal view of what it might do to our daughter or what it might do to our family or whatever that means, right? And we would look at that and we would do kind of the same thing that Dinah's brothers do and be appalled and be pissed off just like Joe Rogan was, okay? And he says, this should absolutely never be the case, and you have no right to make my daughter do this by your laws in the land and all this other stuff, okay? The reason that I even tell you that story is because it paints a picture that there is a morality in people, Joe Rogan and everybody else, there's a morality, and that, re- that morality reacts strongly to situations like this. It's not just Christians that react strongly. It's not, right? Everybody has a a very, very clear reaction to what they believe is right, what they believe is wrong. What they believe is a, a true value or a personal feeling that runs everything that they do. But when you start to talk about somebody being raped and somebody being put into a position, you might say... Although I agree against Joe Rogan's, I agree with the guy's point that abortion is wrong, and I don't fully agree with Joe Rogan, I can't see where God would play into this story. Well, let me tell you where God would play into this story. In Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 and 29, this is what Levitical law says about this situation of rape. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife, because, just in case you didn't think it was rape, because he violated her, he cannot divorce her all her days. God's law says that if a man rapes a woman... He can go to her father and say, can I have her? Now, what's your reaction? The same exact reaction Joe Rogan has to abortion. Hey, you ain't doing that to my daughter, right? It's the same reaction. My my point is not to land on what is right or what is wrong right now. My point is to land on, that's really complicated, That is very challenging. And if you think it's just simple to wing out your opinions and your beliefs and your ideas, you are dead wrong. And what's going to happen is you're going to get into an entanglement, a verbal engagement with somebody as quick-witted and as smart as Joe Rogan. And what's going to happen is you're going to lose. Because the guy that was in that argument with him ended up looking like a fool for simply supporting idea that says, I believe that babies should always live. But Joe Rogan backed him into into a corner that he didn't think through, right? Here's what I want you all to do. When it comes to morality, when it comes to challenging issues, please, dear God, think through your idea before you go spouting it off. Please think it through. You can stand with your crusade sword and act like you know exactly what you would do in that circumstance, but the child that's been raped and the father that has to look her in the eyes or the mother that has to look her in the eyes thinks very different than you do, right? These are complicated issues, and if you really want to go to God's word, you're probably not going to be satisfied with the answer either because he's like, okay, 50 shekels and we'll settle this issue. It's challenging, isn't it, guys? So the first thing that we have to understand is this idea that this this occurrence happens and the Bible says some strange things about it. So what do we do? Well, Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, were incensed about this, rightly so, and they decided to get revenge for their sister. They sought justice for Dinah, in their minds, justice, and the protection of their family's honor. Remember, honor culture. They were completely... Dissed as a family in this reality, okay? And so they pursue justice for themselves. However, their pursuit of justice becomes muddled with vengeance, and it is all a result of deception, a deceptive tactic. So as we delve deeper into the ethical implications of this, let's look at what C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton might think about these issues. Because ethical and judicial opinions of these two, I think, uh, play a huge part in how we should think. In Mere Christianity, Lewis expounds on the virtue of justice and its relationship with mercy. He reminds us that justice is crucial, but that it must be tempered with mercy and forgiveness. Now, do you think that Dinah's brothers... Uh, tempered their justice with mercy. Not at all. They slayed everybody in the whole world, okay? Like that's pretty brutal, okay? When Lewis talks about tempering justice with mercy, again, this is a very nuanced idea. Please don't go walking around telling people that they should never be outraged, that they should do this, and they should just have mercy. It's like somebody telling their wife or a husband telling their wife, just calm down. You know how many times that's worked in all the history of saying calm down? Zero times, okay? It's the same concept if you go, you should just be merciful. Look your raped daughter in the eyes and tell me that. You should just be merciful to the other person. Am I getting through? This is hard, okay? This is very hard in this issue. So, Lewis reminds us that justice is crucial, but it must be tempered with mercy and forgiveness. Seeking justice through unjust means, as Simeon and Levi did, can actually lead to very unintended consequences. Now, for Jacob, we don't know exactly what they were, but for Jacob's words, it is, he is he's odious in the in the nostrils of the people around him so so he's got a bad reputation that was it was more than just that jacob's not just like man everybody thinks i'm a dirtbag it's it's more than just that in his words right so lewis cautions against seeking justice in a way that violates the principles of what he calls love and fairness and C.S. Lewis's definition of fairness is something you should study all on its own. In the case of Simeon and Levi, their deceptive tactics and indiscriminate killing of Shechem's people demonstrate a lack of uh, proportionality, a lack of disregard for the value of human life. So now, what I find fascinating among Christians is our just response to certain things and and our hatred towards abortion, Right? Rightly so, okay? Abortion is the taking of a human life. Make it clear. That's what I believe. It's the taking of a human life. At the same time, we, we tend to jump and wave our flags on this one, and yet we find a lot of just ways to kill people in other ways. Or we claim just ways to kill people. What's my point? Be cautious with what you're doing. Be cautious with your belief system and your ideas. Because you can't out of, out of one mouth say, it is wrong to take a life, and then say, but it's okay to take a life. I know there's particular circumstances and all those things, but you must be careful with this, okay? And war and, and just killing and all these other things are hotly debated issues for that very reason. So Lewis also emphasizes the importance of submitting our desire for justice to God's moral law. He argues that our sense of justice should align with the moral order that is established by God rather than being driven solely by personal vengeance. Now some people will look at this or look at me and say, but Nathan, this is, this is Shechem, this is, this is uh, Jacob, there's no moral law been given. Not exactly Not exactly. Do we have the Ten Commandments? No. Do we have Levitical law? No. But let's go all the way back to Cain and Abel and remember what God says to Cain when he wants to kill his brother. Sin is crouching at the door. How does he know what sin is? How does he know what's right or what's wrong? Because there's something been told to him that here's the mark and here's missing it. We didn't have to get to Moses before God started making rules, okay? Please understand that. This is why in Israel's past, there are, there are entire groups of people, the Amalekites, the Perizzites, the whatever it's they are, right? All of these different people are, are said, the Amalekites in particular, are said that their sin had not reached its fulfillment. Their sin had not, what, what are we talking about? What sin are we talking about? What law were those people given? Something you and I just don't have access to. But something was given to these people, and they were violating it. So please understand, Lewis's point is, we should always be subject to God's law in whatever iteration it, it, we have it, okay? And we all have it somewhere. I think most Christians would argue that we have an inborn, inbuilt morality. Would you agree with that? Well, if that's the case, you should listen, right? You should say, nope, that's a problem. I need to check myself, okay? G.K. Chesterton, let's move on to him. In his work, Everlasting Man, he emphasizes the importance of law and order in society. Now, Chesterton's going to say something here that's going to disrupt you, but it's really good. You just need to hear it out. He cautions against seeking personal vengeance, which undermines the rule of law, just like C.S. Lewis. In his book, Orthodoxy, though, Chesterton provides insight into the ethical implications of deception and violence. Uh, Chesterton suggests, and I completely agree with Chesterton, he suggests that there are times when deception may be necessary for a greater good. (gasps) That can't be, Nathan. You can't ever do that. You ever seen the FBI pull a sting operation? It's deception through and through. Whether you like it or not, and then you love the outcome, don't you? You're like, ha, they busted that guy. Yeah, they deceived him or her, or them, right? But we know that there are times when this kind of thing is necessary for a greater good, but it should be used sparingly, and Chesterton would argue, with caution. Here's what he would say, that the use of deceit must be proportionate to the ends pursued and should not violate fundamental ethical principles. There's a lot to unpack in that, and I don't have time, so have fun with that. Anyway, so regarding violence, Chesterton emphasizes that important, the importance of distinguishing between self-defense and unjust aggression. He cautions against the misuse of violence, particularly when it is driven by personal vengeance rather than genuine protection or the pursuit of justice. How many of you like revenge? Raise your dag on hands because you all love it, <laughs> right? Okay, so justice is fine. Here's what justice is. I'm just gonna give a scenario. My brother-in-law Ryan Burke, he does something horrible to me. I mean, he has many things, but anyway, no. So Ryan does something horrible to me. Let's just say he steals something from me. Do you know what justice would be? Justice would be to show him what he has stolen, and for him to either give it back or to pay back the thing that he's stolen. But what we love is when somebody steals from us, we want the thing back, and then we want them to suffer. We're like, oh, thanks for my stuff back, and guess what's going to happen? I'm never going to treat you the same again. I'm going to always hold it against you. I'm going to be a complete jerk to you all all the days of your life, because I never want you to live down that you're a horrible person. You are a person of vengeance and revenge, not justice. How many of you know that we have violated everything that God has ever called us to do which is right? We have violated God. And you know what he did on a cross? He said, forgive them for they know not what they do. He didn't say, I forgive you, but I'll never let you live it down. Because God is not a God of revenge. He is a God of vengeance if you are not repentant. There's a lot to be thought through on that. So, Chesterton cautions against the misuse of violence, particularly when it is driven by personal vengeance rather than genuine protection or the pursuit of justice. In the case of Simeon and Levi, their violent actions extended beyond the boundaries of just retribution, and they kill not only Shechem, but all the men of the city. And then it doesn't end there. The rest of them loot the city and take everybody with them. I don't know what to do with that church. I'll be honest with you. I've never met a thinker who does know what to do with it, quite honestly. Lots of little softball and uh, softball answers and little ways to avoid the reality of what's going on. The best I can come up with is it's descriptive and not prescriptive. God didn't tell us once we uh, sack a city and we do something egregious and wrong, we should take everybody with us and loot the women and children and all the stuff he doesn't prescribe that action but that is the action that was taken okay hard stuff to deal with both Lewis and Chesterton would likely raise ethical concerns about how S- uh, Simeon and Levi go about this story they would caution against the use of deception and violence because it goes beyond the the reasonable means right and they aren't a people uh, Simeon and Levi were not a people of justice and, both of those two thinkers would, would challenge that. So as we weigh those insights, now we've got thinkers. Now let's look at the Bible. Let's just look at what God's word would say about this. It's our ultimate guide. This is where we go for talks about uh, justice and revenge. Throughout the scripture, uh, throughout the scriptures, God's heart for justice is evident. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, Everybody knows this passage. it'll be on the screen, calls us to. Uh, walk in justice to do justice. Has not, uh, has, he has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly uh, with your God. Seeking justice is a sacred duty, but it has to align with godly principles. So let's talk about just what was happening in the book of Malachi real quick. The book opens with a proclamation of judgment against Israel now. Okay, this is God's people who keep doing stuff wrong. And Judah for their sins, particularly for their social injustices and religious corruption. In case you were wondering how serious God takes this, you should read Micah a lot. Okay, so Micah condemns the wealthy and the powerful for oppressing the poor, not for being wealthy, but for oppressing the poor, the vulnerable, for describing how corruption and greed have infected the leadership of Judah, God's people. He also rebukes the false prophets who speak lies and deceive people. So again, deception is in the fore in this situation. Micah 6:8 often quoted because it's profoundly uh, ethical and moral. Is actually situated in what we would call a a kind of a courtroom scene with God, right? The Lord brings a case against Israel. He highlights their rebellion and their ingratitude despite Him being faithful, right? So Micah 6, 6 through 7 presents a series of questions from the people, wondering how they can approach God and make amends for their sins. And they propose offering extravagant sacrifices, even suggesting the sacrifice of their own children. That sounds fun. More Bible strangeness, right? So, sacrificing their own children in the attempt to appease God. Do you think that appeases God? No. Never did this enter his mind, the scripture says, right? That people would do such an atrocious thing. However, Micah responds in verse 8, revealing what God actually wants. Again, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require for you, of you? He doesn't talk about sacrifice. He doesn't talk about all of these crazy things. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. If that was our motto, life would change, right? It would change drastically. But that's not our motto. That's not how we work. What we do is we act vengefully. We love mercy when it's, tr- when it's attached to us or targeted at us. And we'll walk humbly as long as it serves us. No. No. Just humble. That's what we're called to do. So in that verse, Micah distills God's expectations into three fundamental principles, right? Act with justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly. So that's what we're called to do, right? So as we seek justice, or as we're supposed to seek justice, that means we have to avoid personal vengeance or revenge because those are not, again, those are not humble activities, so the second one would be the danger of personal vengeance. The Bible repeatedly warns against taking vengeance with our own hands. Romans 12, 19. You can turn to that if you'd like. It reminds us of what was said back in Deuteronomy again. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now what's funny is that uh, God is going to repay in Deuteronomy some actions by Israel and other people and in Romans it's going to be against the people that are persecuting the church so there's there's some strange contextual issues going on there but entrusting vengeance to God ensures that justice is served justly and without partiality how many of you are partial Yeah, and how many of you are liars? Yes, I ask it every week, right? The specific context of Romans 12, 9 can be understood within this larger passage of verse 14 through 21. Paul addresses the Christian's response to personal offenses and persecution, providing guidelines for dealing with those adversaries and with those enemies. So Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but Lord, you don't know what's happened to me. Never avenge yourselves. But Lord, you don't know. That's my little girl. But never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. You know who my hero is in most of my life as of late? Liam Neeson in the Taken series of movies, right? I have a special set of skills and I'll kill every last one of you if you mess with my kids, if you mess with the people that I love. This is a hard thing for me because I actually understand that mindset, And I want to go that way if somebody hurts me, right? I don't know what it means to walk by faith in this arena. I don't know what it means. This seems way too steep of an issue for me, right? So, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul admonishes believers not to take vengeance into their own hands when they face mistreatment or harm. Instead, he urges them to trust God. I don't know about you, this is a big weakness of mine. Trusting God is hard enough, but trusting God in this area is something that is quite a struggle. Now, what I do love is that God continues to hold out his hand and say, well, let's try it again. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. But it is very complicated. So Paul is emphasizing that we should refrain from that personal vengeance. Jesus deals with the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul continues in verse 20 and 21. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, it's on the screen, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You remember that from a couple weeks ago? Still love doing that. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't know what circumstance you want to think in your head. But if you could think the worst circumstance possible, a violation against the person that you hold the most dear in your life, do you think it would be easy for you to just overcome evil with good? Not for me. And if you're better at that, I I need you to help me. If you can do that, then you can be the teacher, because I don't understand it. And yet, that's still the call, that's still the walk. See what people love about, uh, I think, generic. I'll just call. I'll, I'll try to be polite right now. Uh, what they love about generic Christian churches is that all of the practical situations that are dealt with by the preacher in the pulpit are all things that don't amount to a hill of beans in your life. How are you going to hold the door for the little old lady as she comes into the grocery store? Well, it's an electronic door, so shut up, right? Or how are you going to do any of these things? You're asking, you're setting up practical situations that are absolutely irrelevant. Let's deal with a situation where your daughter is actually raped. What are you going to do? you going to look Jesus in the eyes and say, I want to be just like you? I want you to be, I want to be, I just have no dang clue what I'm going to do. See guys, this is a lot harder than you might think it is. It's always easy to follow Jesus when there's nothing on the line. Always. And the truth is, most of us follow Jesus with nothing on the line. But what happens when your boss comes in and fires you, and you have to go home and tell your husband or tell your wife that you don't actually have income anymore, you can't support the family, that you guys have just been in a colossal series of fights and discussions about how you do this wrong or that wrong and all this other stuff, and you got to go home and you got to face this. Are you going to go home and say, I'm just going to trust Jesus that this is going to go well? I hope you will. But most likely, you're going to get home, you're going to be scared to death, and then you're just going to lie about it. And then go the next day and try to figure it out. Try to put it all together. When there's something on the line, it is difficult to follow Jesus. I've been walking with Barney through his daughter having cancer and knowing that the outcome is not good. What do you do? It's easy to follow Jesus when it's just the common cold What do you do when it's somebody who's actually said they're not going to make this? What do you do when you walk with a family that can't seem to bring a baby to term? What do you do in that situation? Ah, just trust God. It's just that easy. Huh? It's not that easy, guys. Because when something's on the line, walking after Jesus becomes real. As long as nothing's on the line, it doesn't matter. And then we get to walk around, pat ourselves on the back, and say, I'm an amazing Christian. Jesus loves me. He does love you. He doesn't quite like your arrogance, but he loves you, right? When there's something on the line, that's when life matters. When there was something on the line, Jacob's family screwed this up. Screw this up because justice was not on their minds. It was revenge. It was vengeance. It was, I'm going to get mine now. We've got to all be careful with regard to this. Paul encourages believers to respond to mistreatment with kindness and love, even towards their enemies. And by so doing, we demonstrate the transformative love of Christ to absolutely change the circumstance. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example. And I don't have to tell you what he does other than sitting on a cross, calls out and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, when we knew full well what we were doing. And he still dies for our sins. So if we apply all of this stuff as believers, we are called to be salt, we're called to be light, we're called to seek justice, avoid revenge, we're supposed to look like Jesus, how do we do it? The first thing that we do is we pray for discernment. Lord, I need to know what is right in the situation and what is wrong in the situation. I need to know what is good in the situation and what is bad in the situation. I need to know what you see as evil and what you see as good. I need to know what is not either of those things. I need your help. And contrary to popular Christian teachings, prayer is not just to change you. Prayer is to actually converse with the living God. Who talks to you? You ever gone into a grocery store and wanted to minister to somebody? And you're just like, you're like, God, just point me in a direction. Ever been in this situation? Maybe not. Maybe I'm just a crazy person. But you go in, you're like, Lord, just point me in the right direction. And he doesn't point you to 100 people in the store. But he does point you to one person. Why did he do that? Let me tell you. Because he talked to you. Because he told you something. This is not hard. He does speak to you. He does prompt you. He does call you to things, right? Well, guess what? He'll do the same thing when you're dealing with a situation that it is tense and as complicated and as hard as this. Moral situations on what you should do and what you should not do. You should listen to the living God and do what he says. Is it easy? pardon me but hell no it is not easy in the face of injustice we have to first turn to God in prayer seek wisdom seek discernment find out what his response is going to be and then we can move forward the second thing is know his given responses always advocate for justice always advocate for justice if there is a mechanism by which your family or your loved ones or whatever circumstance you're in can be dealt with through a just system, take that step. Why? Because that's what God says to do. The scripture teaches us that we can speak truth to power, this kind of crazy phrase that we like to use not in the way it was used during the covid problem but the idea is we speak truth to those who are oppressing and those who are bullying and those who are shoving us down because why they are the very people that are supposed to be just so you take that on and you deal with it and you try to correct and right the wrongs last we cultivate mercy in a pursuit of justice we should never forget that we are supposed to be known by our mercy and our compassion and our forgiveness. We're supposed to be seen by this. As hard as it may be, we need to be seen by this. So in conclusion, the story here, uh, it forces us to grapple with profound ethical issues. Specifically justice and specifically revenge. And by understanding customs and wise thoughts from people like C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton. I think we can come up with a better action plan moving forward, but nothing better than just looking at the Word of God and realizing that we need to seek God in prayer. We need to know that he tells us to act justly, and then we need to love mercy, and that in everything we do, we walk humbly the best we can. And then when we screw that up, we go, Lord, I screwed that up. You know that he's your father, right? You know that he cares about you, right? You know what happens when I screw up when I was a kid? I screwed up at my, my house, my mom and dad. They told me to move out. No, they didn't at all, right? <laughs> right? They didn't because they're good parents. They looked at me and they said, okay, let's pick it back up. I think I went in life, I think I went from... Uh, riding my bike by myself to riding my bike with training wheels. And I mean that as a metaphor uh, many times because uh, the second I felt I could do it on my own, morally, ethically, as an individual, I often fell short. And guess what happened? Sometimes my dad, my mom, they just pick me back up and say, pedal the bike again. Sometimes they were like, you kind of suck at this. We're going to put the training wheels back on, (laughs) Right? right? That's just the way it goes. That's what God does with us. But the thing he doesn't do with us is go, see ya, I hate you, never liked that sheep anyway. He doesn't. The very thing Christians do with each other is that. See ya, I didn't like that sheep anyway. Right? It's a problem. We need to be better than this. Okay? So, how many of you love the weird stories of the Bible? Yeah. Yeah, next time I'm having somebody else preach them. Anyway, so, but it's really important, guys. Justice is an important thing, and we need to be a people of justice, mercy, and humility. Amen?